Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of 1 Peter. Um, we're probably going to spend the rest of the year going through the book of 1 Peter. This is going to be uh, the second half of the first chapter. And if you guys remember last week, in the first part of this chapter, uh, Peter was primarily dealing with, with walking in hope. Because we learned that we were, we were born again, we're made brand new, born again to a living hope. And this is a hope that will never fade. It's never going to fail. It's never going to, to disappear. It's never going to, to, we're not going to turn around one day and go, I wonder where my hope went. Because this hope that God had is being guarded by his power. It can't be stolen away. If you've placed your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, it can't be stolen away by anything. There's not a power in this world that can steal it from you. Matter of fact, Peter even reminded us to rejoice in our times of struggling and our times of pain. He said, rejoice. And we're like, you're crazy, Peter. But he doesn't say to rejoice for these things. He says to rejoice in these things. Because the reality is, is there's not a pain, there's not a struggle, there's not a failure, there's not a situation that you can ever face that is so large that it'll be able to steal away the hope that you have in God. Even if it kills you, you still have an eternity with Christ, with God. Even, even if what you're going through right now, that is why so many Christian men and women martyrs have given their life because they determined the hope that they had in Christ was worth it to go on and take on the danger and stuff that they're facing. Right now, the missionaries in the Middle East, I can't imagine what they must be thinking every single day, but they figure it's worth it. And no matter how bad it gets, their hope can't be stolen away. Amen? What was really interesting is as we were reading, Peter's explaining to, to them that, that the, the prophets have been prophesying about the Messiah the whole time. And he said, but you know what? They weren't prophesying for themselves. They were actually prophesying for you and me. For the time of the church, they were prophesying about a Messiah who would make himself manifest in our days, not in theirs. And then we even learned that the angels long to look into what God was doing for me. That's always been an interesting phrase in there, that, that we are partaking in things that even the angels long to look, is what it says. Man, if the angels long to look in it, I think that, that we might want to take it a little more serious as well. Amen? Amen? But now we're heading into the second part of this chapter. He starts with walking in hope, but then he starts talking about something that it seems like many Christians struggle with a little bit, and that's walking in holiness. We live in a society where not only is sin acceptable, but it's starting to become applauded. And the, the, the mainstream media right now, if, if, if you want to stand up for what God has considered righteous and stand against sin, not only uh, do people disagree with you, but they'll ostracize you for it as well. I mean, we're seeing right now that, 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 that people do stuff that somebody else doesn't agree with and they're, they're, they're causing advertisers to fall away and they make such a stink because they want to applaud. They, they not only uh, agree with it, but they, they, they support all the sin that's going on. Paul described it well in Romans 128-32. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and do what ought not to be done. Sounds kind of familiar. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. 
That's the society we're living in right now. Sin is no longer stuck behind closed doors where people are trying to hide it. Now it's right out in the open. But as Christians, how many of you are not supposed to look like the world? As Christians, you're supposed to walk in holiness. You're supposed to walk set apart. We should look and act differently. Not only should you look and act differently than how you used to look and act, but differently than how the world looks and acts. You know, it's one of those things when I, when I look at, at young kids who are trying to fit in with what's going on in the world today, whether it be tattoos or earrings or, or how they dress, whatever it is, I never really have a, an issue so much with those things except for I always wonder, who are they trying to look like? Who are they trying to fit in with? What crowd are they trying to blend with? That's what always concerns me when people do those kind of things. Because the truth is, is that we're supposed to look different. But did you know this attitude is, at least a similar one, is, is not just prevalent in the world, but it's also uh, so many times prevalent in the church. This idea of, of cheap grace, this idea of, of uh, uh, salvation being a get-out-of-free card, a get-out-of-jail-free card. They don't realize that when we get born again, it's not so that we can be forgiven every time we messed up, but it's so that we can finally live the life that God has called us to live. We're supposed to walk in holiness. We, don't, we didn't get saved. We didn't get forgiven so we can continue doing all the same old nonsense and stupid stuff we were doing before. We got saved so we could be free from the bondage of all those things. You know, I'm so thankful that if I stumble... And if I fall, that, that, that there is an advocate for me in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that if I mess up, because how many know we still do mess up from time to time? But for the Christian, it should be abnormal. It shouldn't be the norm. It should be abnormal for a Christian to sin, to fail. And I know what happens, and praise God, we have an advocate in the Son to our Father. But the thing is, is the purpose of God's grace is not to allow us to continue in all that mess that we used to be in. It's so that we can be free. And we're to live as a holy people that is set apart from God. Amen? Let's go ahead and see what Peter has to say about it. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now I just went and gave a whole spiel on how we're supposed to be holy. Everybody heard that, right? What did I say? Repeat just kidding, I'm not going to test you right now. The test, at, the test is at the end of the message. You guys are silly. It's true that we're called to be holy, but how many know that sometimes that's easier said than done? Because that's the thing is sometimes we get up here and we preach, we look at the Word, and we're like, this is what it says. And, but it's not so simple many times. Sometimes, especially when we live in a world like today's, it can be difficult to live the way that we're supposed to live. I understand it's not always easy to do because there's an enemy that is always trying to tempt you. We also have those around us who either intentionally or unintentionally are trying to persuade us into slipping back into those old things. If you have too many old friends still around you, they might want you to come out and get involved in all the stuff that, that God has set you free from. And sometimes people are doing it intentionally. They don't like who you've become and they're trying to pull you back down. Sometimes people do it unintentionally. They don't even know what's going on. This is the life that they live and they, it blows their mind that somebody might live differently. And the reality is, is that inside each and every one of us, I think there's an innate, an innate desire to be loved by those around us. And that causes us to do all kinds of stupid. Because we want people to like us. I mean, we do stuff to make sure that other people around us like us when, when we know that we shouldn't. 
Because what happens is, is that, that uh, how many know that, that, that we're created to be relational? We're created to love and to be loved. But the problem is, is we go looking for the solution to that, to that feeling, to that desire in an illegitimate method, in an illegitimate means. We look for love and, and validation from the people around us instead of looking to our Heavenly Father, which is the only one that matters. So we're, we think about the people that we work with and we begin to compromise. We begin to do different things to keep the peace or to maybe, because to, we don't want them giving us a hard time because the, the reality is, is we live in a world where they'll applaud you for, for sinning, but if you want to stand against those things, they'll try to throw you under the bus. So instead of standing strong or worried about fitting in or even making sure the people around us like us, we do all kinds of crazy things that we shouldn't. So Peter understands this. He understands that that we still have a life to live. We're still people. So he begins to give us instructions, and he's actually going to have five major instructions on how to live a holy life. And the first of the five instructions, there's three of them in verse 13, are as follows. One, he says, prepare your minds for action. This means that we need to be disciplined and be ready. How do you think a soldier in the U.S. Army prepares? They work out, they get in shape, they practice with their weapons, they practice with their tools. And they are disciplining their minds and their bodies to be ready for action so that way at a moment's notice they can get a phone call, jump on the next plane, and serve our country. Amen? Amen. That's how they prepare. And the thing is, the same is true for us. He says that we have to prepare our minds. That means that we have to focus on the things of God instead of focusing on the, the rest of the things around us we have to ask ourselves are we exercising our minds in the things of god you know it's great if you spent when you first got saved if you were reading your bible every single day you were praying every single day you were studying every single day but at, later in your life you haven't touched the bible in a year how many know that you have to exercise stuff to keep it in top shape you have to keep working it or otherwise it atrophies. That's one of the biggest problems they have when they send astronauts into space. When there's no gravity, there's no uh, return force when they walk, when they move around. So they, they've actually had to invent all kinds of methods to get them to, to work out in space. And all it does is slow the atrophy. It doesn't, com it doesn't fix it completely. If you don't prepare your mind, if you're not constantly exercising it, it is going to atrophy and it's not going to be ready when it's called upon. Romans 12.2 says to, to renew your mind daily. If you read that phrase in Romans 12.2, it's not a uh, uh, God's going to do it for you. It's actually a command. You're to renew your mind daily. That means spending time in the Word. That means spending time in prayer. You know, if you're ever in a, a struggling time, God will recall to your memory scriptures and He'll speak to you to prepare you for those things. Has anybody ever had a, had a, a scripture come to mind when you were struggling? You know, if you never read your Bible and you don't have the Scripture in your memory somewhere in the first place to be recalled, you'll never get those things. We have to actually prepare our mind to discipline our, ourselves to read the Word because we can't remember something that was never there in the first place. Now how I wish you could just lay with a Bible as your pillow and just take it in by osmosis. That'd be much easier. Even Jesus had to read His Bible. 
scholars, when you look at, at the stuff that Jesus typically quoted, he typically quoted out of the book of Isaiah. And, and in the smaller hometowns and their temples and their, their synagogues where they were at, they didn't have a copy of every book oftentimes. They just had scrolls of, of certain, certain uh, books, certain writings, and they, they figured that where Jesus was, the one that he had the most access to was Isaiah, because that's what he almost always quotes from. Jesus had to read the Bible. He didn't have it just, just divinely deposited into his head. Matter of fact, the, the Bible says that he set down his deity. He set it off to the side. He walked as a man just like you or I. He operated in the Holy Spirit just like you or I. If Jesus had to do it, how many of you guys need to do it as well? You need to prepare your minds. The next thing he says is that you have to be sober-minded. This means keeping your mind from distraction and from clutter. This means to be in control of your thoughts and actions. This means when you have those stupid thoughts pop in your head, you need to, to take a hold of them. That's why the scripture says take every thought captive. Don't let your mind just run off because when you do that, it, it leads to all kinds of dumb stuff. I know this from experience. I'm sure you've experienced it a few times yourself. You need to take those thoughts captive and replace them with different ones. If nothing else, just start re re repeating scripture, which... How are you going to repeat scripture if you never ever read any in the first place? You actually have to read it and understand it and have it in your memory to repeat that scripture. And in this thing, when we, we see sober-minded, our first thought is to go to, to drugs and alcohol. And while Paul is not specifically speaking of drugs and alcohol in this situation, although if that's still something you struggle with, alcohol or drugs or anything like that, it will keep you from being sober-minded even in, in, in spiritual areas. It's something you need to address. But he's not specifically talking about that. But I think if we take a look at that, 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 uh, that mind frame, it'll help us to understand. Because to, to understand what sober-minded is, we have to look at what the opposite of being sober-minded is. And, and that's to be intoxicated. And this is what the definition of intoxicated is according to the internet. And the internet is always right. <laughs> he says, the definition is, uh, it says to be affected by alcohol or drugs, especially to the point where physical and mental control is markedly diminished. Well, as a Christian, we need to make sure that our mind is not in a diminished state. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be focused. We need to have our... our and, and you'll notice the, the solution to almost all this is spending time in the Word and in prayer, keeping your focus on heavenly things and not on earthly things. Amen? We need to be in control. We need to be walking in obedience. And if we let the things of this world overwhelm us or distract us, then we're going to be incapable of keeping our eyes on God. It's really hard to be looking at Jesus when you're looking at something else. We're not like chameleons where we can have eyes going in different directions. You'll notice the eyes, your eyes are on the front of your head. And you can only look at one thing at a time. We have to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, amen? As Christians, we should never be controlled by outside, outside circumstances. But rather, we should always be directed by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. That's why Paul said, it's not I who lives, but Christ inside of me. Amen? Because that's what directed Paul, was Jesus living inside of him. That's what should direct us as well. And then finally, so the first one is prepare your mind. Second is be sober-minded. And then he says, we need to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to set our hope fully on grace. 
You know, one of the biggest mistakes that anybody makes, but particularly it's, it's particularly disheartening when Christians do it, is to set their hope on anything else but Jesus Christ. And so many people do. We look at our job as somehow a source of hope. It's going to get us through. We look at our retirement. We look at the stock market. And heaven forbid, you look at the government because it's a mess. But we look to, so many people look to other things to put their hope, to put their trust in, to save them. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we can make as Christians. Because how many of you know that if you have your eyes set on God, it doesn't matter if the stock market crashes. He's going to take care of you. How many of you know that it doesn't matter if your retirement dissolves? God loves you. How many know it doesn't matter if the government implodes? God loves you. God's going to see you through no matter what you're dealing with. Keeping our eyes on God is the smartest thing that we can do. Peter says, set your hope fully on grace that is revealed in Jesus Christ. He is more than enough. He is more than enough. And if we remember that and we set our hope fully on Him and firmly on Him, then you'll find that you're actually able to walk as God intended you to walk. You're actually able to to walk in holiness when your eyes are on Jesus, when your hope is set in Him. And you'll be shocked at how adjusting your thought process so that you are hopeful, having a good outlook because it's focused on Jesus Christ. You'll be shocked at just changing that, that, that slight mental shift Trust and focus on Jesus. You'll be, you'll be amazed how it impacts how you live your life. I know this because I know how it impacted my life. I know how it's impacted so many lives around me when I've seen them start doing it. If you're not doing it now, make that mental shift. Put your focus on Him, your trust in Him. If you're having trouble around, you don't get so stressed out that it tears you up, but instead begin to pray, thank God that He's going to get you through it, and see how God will move in your life. And then when... Verse 14 through 16, he continues with the the next two of the five instructions. He says, in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the next two instructions. The first one, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. Ephesians 2.2, we learn that we were actually once sons of disobedience. But now we're sons of obedience. And we're obedient to the one who gave us everything. This is actually one of the outcomes of salvation is your obedience to God. If you have a a, a life-changing experience with God, and I'm not talking about an emotional experience where you come up here and you say a prayer and you leave that Sunday morning and you're you're just back where you were. How many of the prayer and stuff? When we do a, a prayer for salvation, it's not the prayer that saves you. That's why when we get up here and do the prayer, if I do it or a pastor Joseph does it, and matter of fact, when I do it from time to time, the prayer is always different because the prayer is not what saves you. It's your faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. So you can come up here and have an emotional experience and walk out the door not changed at all because it was just emotional. You didn't actually put your trust in the one who gave everything for you. But when you do have that, when you have that, that, that salvation-producing faith where you put your trust in Him, the natural outcome of that is obedience to the one who gave everything to you. Because 
At that moment, the, the heart of stone is removed. It's a supernatural experience that happens. You're given a brand new spirit inside of you, and then you now have the mind of Christ. And as a, as a son or as a daughter, our instinct is to be obedient to the Father, to want to please our Father. And we begin to think like Him. And as a result of that, it says we're not to be conformed to who we used to be. You know, I, you guys know, I, I, I try to think about simple things to describe this stuff. And I, I, how do I reconcile this in my head? How do I work through it? And, and as I was going through the scripture, all, all I could think of was jello. That's what came to my head was jello. Because when you make jello, you put it in a pan, right? And what does the jello do? It conforms to the shape of the pan. You can make jello any shape that you want, depending on what you put it in. So you take this jello. And it conforms to the shape of the pan. But how many of you know that, that even when you're done, even though it looks like the pan, the jello is still not the pan? See, that's what happens with Christians, is that we begin to slip and be conformed to the shape of who we used to be, even though that's not who we are anymore. That's why we have to remind it to stop acting like who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. The jello doesn't become the pan. And if you're born again, just because you start slipping into those old ways, it doesn't mean that you, you're unsaved anymore. It doesn't mean you are who you used to be. You're brand new. It's time to start living that out in your life. It's time to start walking in holiness and letting what happened on the inside begin to express itself on the outside. Amen? Don't be like jello. But it's something we definitely have to be concerned with. The fact that it's even mentioned, we're even commanded not to be conformed, means that it's possible. That means that it was actually a concern. So we need to be diligent. We need to, like, we need to start preparing our minds. We need to be sober-minded. We need to set our hope fully on, on G, the grace in Jesus Christ. And then we need to be obedient and not let ourselves be trapped up and caught up in who we used to be. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's difficult takes a little work on our part because you have to spend the time in discipline renewing your mind reading the word praying that means that you you have to begin to ask god for strength to help you get through these things that means that you might even have to remove yourself from situations and from people who are trying to drag you back to where you were one of the the uh, the hardest things that when i began to fully follow god and said, you know what, I'm giving my life to him. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm not, I'm not compromising anymore. I'm not doing it halfway anymore. I'm not going to be the guy that says I'm a Christian on Sunday, but act just like the rest of the world Saturday night, hoping I wasn't too tired to make it on Sunday morning. I was tired of being that person. But you know what happened is, is I lost many friends, not in a, in, a, in a bad falling out kind of way, like nobody was mad at me, nobody hated me, but I realized that, that we no longer had anything in common. I wasn't interested in, in, in drinking and drugs and the girls and all that stuff anymore. That wasn't what I wanted. And I had to separate myself from those people because they didn't have the same understanding and they wanted me to keep doing those things. And fortunately for me, I, all my friends were pretty good people and, and they didn't try to drag me back with them. They understood, but it definitely did end in, in losing some friends. Now at best, they're acquaintances. We talk every now and then, but we don't have the same relationship. And that was hard. I get that. But there's been a couple of amazing things that happened. One, I've made amazing friends with people who have the same mind that I do who are equally yoked I have so many friends that love God just as much as I do 
And I wouldn't trade it. Because the alternative is a, is a, is a passing pleasure of sin shortly, a short time on this earth. Or the surpassing greatness of God that His salvation lasts for eternity. I'm not going to trade it back, but I get that it can be difficult. The one friend that I'm talking, he was the best man at my wedding. And I hardly see him anymore. So I know it's not easy. But I wouldn't trade it. And I just pray that he comes along and joins me at one point. Every person that I've had to, to walk away from, I pray that they make it. After that, he says, to be holy. He says, do not be confirmed. And he says, but as he has called you, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Did you know that this isn't just a command, but it's also a depiction of reality? Amen. How many know that children inherit the nature of their parents? If you don't believe me, just look at my son. Poor guy, all I wanted to give him was my last name. But children... <laughs> yeah, I know. Who, who did I insult worse, you or me? <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> but we inherit the nature of our, of our parents. You'll notice that, that you, you, you'll find that you have many of the same mannerisms that they had. You have a lot of the same, you definitely look like them. That's part of the package. How many of you spent your whole life saying, I'm not going to turn out like my mother, and one day you woke up and said, I'm just like my mother? <laughs> we inherit the nature of our parents. So that means that we should just look, look just like our Heavenly Father as well, amen? Because we've inherited His nature. Not only should we live holy like our Holy Father, but the reality is, is that we are holy by His nature and the finished work of His Son. There's a, a, a spiritual element and a physical element of this. Like I said, for one, it's not just a, 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 a command, it's a depiction of reality. He says that you shall be holy for I am holy. Because of what Jesus Christ did, you are holy because He is holy. He has made us that way. The problem is, many of us don't live that way. So we have to have that moment where the spiritual reality begins to manifest in our physical reality. We need to let what has happened in our spirit live out into our real life. And that's the part where we have to be holy in all of our conduct. Those are choices that we make each and every day. And you're going to have to make a choice to be holy. Every, every action that you do, the, the Scripture says that we're slaves to righteousness, which means that righteousness should dictate every single thing that we do. It is the one in control. And we have to make decisions. Do we live according to righteousness? Do we live holy? Or do we slip back into the ways we used to be? And the good news is, if you fall, if you slip, all you have to do is get back up. You start walking the wrong way, you realize that you get back up, you do an about face, and you start walking back towards God. That's the whole thing about repentance anyway. Repentance isn't about feeling guilty or sorry. It's about turning your butt around and looking the other direction, walking the other direction. And that's what being living holy is. It's just walking out the internal reality of what Christ has accomplished inside of you. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 17 through 19, he says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, is do we actually call on him as Father? As a Christian, you should. If you're born again, you should. And if so, that means that we have to conduct ourselves in a manner that reflects that. You know, that's, you can always tell what someone really believes by how they live their life. You know, you can say somebody that, that, that talks about, you know, they're compassionate, they love those who are less fortunate, they, they, they want to do things for them, but if they never do anything to actually support those people then you're wondering, do they really believe what they say that they believe or are they just spitting out talking points so they look good? The way we live our lives is a reflection of what we actually believe. And the reality is is that one day we're going to stand before God. That's what he says here. He, uh, we have a Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He's not talking about sin. How many of sin was paid for by Jesus Christ? However, we are still going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account. So if sin has already been taken care of, sin, the price has been paid, what are we going to give an account for? What deeds are he going to be judged? We're going to have to give an account for the life that we lived. What he has given us. I don't, it's, if somebody was set free from prison and given the money to, to set up and live a, a, a right life and get away from, from the criminality, we would we would always wonder if that person got out and they, they, they just took that money, they took that freedom and got right back into to the life of crime. Every single one of us in here would go, that's terrible. He just, just spit all over the person that set them free, that, that let them out. I mean, what kind of person would do that? Yet so many times as Christians, we do the same thing. We've been set completely free. We've been given everything that leads to, to righteousness and to life. We've given everything that we need, yet we still slip back into the old ways. And we don't, we don't reflect what is accomplished inside of us. But we're going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for the things that we've done and say, hey, I gave you freedom. I gave you the ability to live right. I gave you the ability to love others, to be compassionate, to make an impact, to make a difference. But all you, all you did was sat on your holy assurance instead of getting out there and making a difference. Because here's the deal. God paid an inordinate, an unthinkable price for your freedom. It wasn't, it, the payment wasn't just as simple as, like he says, it's not a perishable thing such as silver or gold. He didn't just make three easy payments of $19.99 to get you guys out of the situation that you were in. It reminds me of the story of the, there was a, a pig, a cow, and a chicken. And they were owned by a farmer. And they all get together and say, you know what? Our farmer isn't a great guy. He always takes care of us. We want to make him a healthy breakfast. So, so the, the cow says, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's do it. They all agree and they start thinking about what they're going to provide. The cow says, you know what? I can provide fresh milk for the farmer. And the chicken goes, that's a great idea. You know what? I'm going to provide fresh eggs because we know he likes eggs. But then the pig gets somber when he realizes that all he has to offer is ham and bacon. You see, the difference is, is the, the cow and the chicken, they were making a commitment, but the pig was all in. 
The pig was giving up everything. That's what Jesus did with us. He was all in. He gave everything. It wasn't, it wasn't a cheap payment. It wasn't a small payment. It wasn't light. It wasn't easy. He gave everything for us. He says that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that with a blood, like that with a, a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, when you realize how much you were actually given, I don't know how to live in any other way to reflect that, to, to give thanks for that, to honor the Father who gave me so much in His Son. I don't know any other way to live but to honor Him in that. The reality is, is your salvation wasn't cheap. And we should never treat it as such. Amen? And in verse 20 through 21, he says, He was foreknown. He's still talking, you know, he's talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, was, but was made manifest for the last times for the sake of you. We talked about this a little bit in the intro, but, but he, was, he was prophesied about and foreknown before the foundation of the world. This means that Jesus wasn't plan B. Jesus was always plan A. So many times if you read through the, the Scriptures and you don't spend a little time studying it or you just listen to, to what you hear on TV and in movies, you'll think that, that uh, God started with the, the, Jewish, uh, the, the Jews and He set up uh, sacrifice and it didn't work out, so then He went with plan B, which was Jesus. But the reality is that Jesus was always plan A. The plan was always Jesus. Because he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times, talking about now times, the, the time of the church, for our sake. You know, we, we read about the, 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 you guys have read the faith chapter in the book of Hebrews chapter 11? He, he lists all these people that died in faith, and this is what he says, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He says they all died in faith, not having received these things that were made manifest in the last times for us. Even they were looking forward to Jesus. Matter of fact, the provision for everybody in the Old Testament, everybody that died before Jesus, the provision for them to be saved is still Jesus. Their faith was still in God. They were looking forward to the promise. They died in faith waiting for something that we don't have to wait for. We have it now. And God raised him from the dead to give approval for what he's done. And Romans 1, 3-4 says, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the, de the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. says he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that was proof that God approved of what he had done. It was proof that, that it was finished. He sat down at the right hand of God for the sake of us. And because he died, we can have hope and faith. Because he died, that we can finally live the life that God has called us to live. You know, before, before Christ, before salvation, it was impossible for you to live a sinless life. It's one of the reasons why I think it's crazy when, when Christians get all upset when non-Christians are acting unchristian-like. They're not Christians. Why would they act like Christians? It doesn't make any sense to me. But once you're born again, God has set you free and you're finally able to live the life that you've called. And we should hold one another accountable. 
We need to do it in a right way. It's not about condemnation. It's about reminding people they've been set free, they're forgiven, they're righteous, and they have the ability to walk in that. But the thing is, without Jesus, without what He did, we could never be in fellowship with God. Because darkness can have no fellowship with light. But because of what He's done, He no longer has to extract the penalty for sin from us. Because He is a righteous God, there is a penalty for sin. It does have to be paid, but His Son paid it for us. And because of Jesus, we can now go and stand before God with a clean conscience. And with boldness can we approach His throne. I don't think you guys, I don't think many of us understand the, the gravity and the reality of the, uh, being able to, to speak to God. If any of you tried to walk up and speak to the President of the United States who is way below God, you wouldn't make it through the front door. But God says, you can speak to me. You can approach His throne boldly. That's an amazing thing. And he goes on in verse uh, sorry, verse 21 says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And then verse 22 and, and through 23, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, First, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth, for the for a sincere and brotherly love. You know that we have purified ourselves by hearing and doing the Word of God. And he's talking about that outward sanctification. When you're born again, immediately you're pure, you're holy, you're righteous before God. But by being obedient to the Word and living, let it, letting Christ live through us, we purify the outside. Because we have confessed with Christ, confessed Christ with our mouths, we believed in our hearts. And we have to do these things to live a pure life. Did you know that it's impossible to live pure on the outside when the inside's still a mess? You know, you ever, you ever find one of those cups in your kid's room that, that has all the, the stuff growing inside of it? If you look at it from the outside looking in, it can look clean. You're like, oh, that's not bad. But as soon as you tip it up, you know, that kind of cup, you ever find that in your kid's room? Maybe it's just, maybe it's just Mike and I, Blake, my other, or is Ali out here? Okay, we can, we can use her as an example. <laughs> Not Blake. Blake never has this stuff happen. <laughs> so you guys should all be thankful you're not preacher's kids because you get to be using the sermons all the time. Hallelujah. See, I'm smart. When I use my wife in the sermon, it's always good things. For my kids, I can just throw them under the bus. It's great. <laughs> just kidding. I love you, son. Did you ever know that you're my hero? <laughs> <laughs> hallelujah so you guys are distracting me where am i at all right but you can't live pure on the outside if your inside is all messed up that's why we need jesus but when when we get clean on the inside we can finally start to live on the outside what is on the inside and our ability to love one another without hypocrisy is rooted in our new self he says that this is obedient to the truth for a sincere brotherly love Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The, the, the reality is, is a changed life inside of us should impact the relationships that we have with every other brother and sister in Christ. And I don't know if you know this, but God is the one who gave you the ability to love in the first place. We're made in His image, and that's one of His characteristics that we have inherited is the ability to love. Except for now, we can love 
with just thoughts. We don't have those, those pure motives. We're not, we're not loving people to get, but we're loving people just because we've been loved. And it's a love that's deep and full. It's not a, it's a, a surface kind of love. You ever met people with that surface kind of love? I'll love you as long as you're doing stuff for me, but as soon as you're not, then I'm out the door. That's not a deep love. That's not, not the kind of love that we should have for one another. The love that we should have for one another is pure. It's, it's deep. It's full. When somebody messes up, then we offer forgiveness and we walk alongside of them instead of running away from them. And then once again, he reminds us that we are, are new. We've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. We're reminded that we're, we're brand new and we're reminded that it's from something that is imperishable that cannot be taken away. You know, when you begin to read the same stuff over and over, you might want to think this might be important. He mentions that it's imperishable. He mentions that we're brand new. When you see it over and over again, maybe God's trying to make a point. He says, I bet they didn't hear me the first time I, I said it, so I'm going to say it again. It's from an incorruptible seed without blemish. And it's brilliant because the symptom wasn't treated. The problem was. God didn't just put a band-aid on our, 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 our issue, but he completely fixed it in his son. And then we'll end here in verses 24 through 25. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You know, the reality is, is that every living thing will eventually perish. It will eventually fade. The body that we live in is one day going to fade and pass away. Unless Jesus comes back while we're still walking around, you're going to die. If you didn't know this, spoiler alert. But one day, the body is going to give up. But the Word of God lasts forever. His Word never fails. It never fades. It never gives up. It never runs out. And regardless of what we're going through right now, regardless of any situation that we may face, no matter how bad it is, even if it would indeed kill us, it can't take away what God has accomplished inside of us because we have an eternity with Him. And that's the good news of the Gospel. He died so that we could live, not only on this earth, but for eternity with Him. So let's be a people who have recognized, I guess, the, the, the gravitas of the situation, the, the heft of the salvation that Christ has provided for you. It wasn't a simple thing. Your salvation wasn't cheap. So let's be a people who recognize this and walk as a people set apart, honoring of the Father who gave us everything. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.